for in Ruth chapter 3 today. Joshua judges Ruth. You know, it's interesting. I think I mentioned last week, I'm not sure that, you know, in this story we, uh, wait a second. I thought they had four. I'm confused. That one looks more like him than the other three. I don't, I don't know. Oh, oh well. It's hard to keep track. It's interesting the way in our Bibles, uh, our books of the Bible, our uh, Joshua judges Ruth, but uh, the Jews have the Old Testament, the same books as we have, but they put them in a different order. Uh, they actually have uh, the book of Ruth right after Proverbs, uh, because Proverbs 31 is about the virtuous, godly woman. And then you go into the book of Ruth, which is the example of that, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting uh, to do it that way. Uh, so we're going to continue in uh, our study uh, of the book of Ruth. I uh, saw this this morning, a weekend edition of the USA Today and the the money business section. Very interesting headline says CEOs caught misbehaving. Um, and it's all about, you know, the, the price line uh, CEO, Darren Houston. He resigned Thursday for uh, an inappropriate relationship with someone at work. Uh, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. They mentioned Dob Charney from American Apparel, Stephen McMillian, uh, McMillian, McMillan from a company called Stryker. Uh, Brian Dunn uh, resigned in April 2012 from Best Buy. Uh, after an investigation into a close personal relationship with a female employee, Kenneth Milani from Home, uh, Highmark, uh, Harry Stonecipher from Boeing uh, had to resign a few years ago for an inappropriate relationship at work. Uh, Mark Hurd from Hewlett Packard, same thing in 2010, charged with sexual harassment, violation of conduct standards. Uh, Starwood Hotel CEO Stephen Hayer. Uh, was fired several years ago for sending inappropriate messages to female employees. You know, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, the moral crisis in our country, uh, the sexual moral crisis in our country, just when we think it can't get any worse, it just keeps getting worse. Uh, and by the way, folks, it can get worse. It will keep getting worse. That's what the, uh, the scriptures tell us. Uh, I was thinking about uh, just the history of, you want to call it a revolution, uh, the sexual revolution in our country. And I just jotted down a few things, kind of a short little timeline. Uh, back in 1948, the Kinsey reports came out, remember, on human sexuality. Uh, 1963, the whole so-called revolution, uh, a lady named Betty Friedan wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique uh, in 1963. And she said that the problem, she called it the problem that has no name, how suburban housewives were unhappy uh, at home without working outside the home. They were unhappy in their sexual relationships with their husbands. Uh, and that book sparked what was called the second wave feminism uh, movement in our country. And then, of course, uh, the 1960s with Woodstock and into the 70s, the sexual revolution. Uh, and one one uh, 
One writer described the sexual revolution in the 1960s this way. He said that the women's liberation movement and the development in contraceptions instigated greater sexual experimentation, especially outside of marriage. Uh, And that was a very good thing, uh, I guess, for the human uh, psyche to be able to express itself that way. Then on June 29th, 1969, we had the Stonewall Riots in New York City uh, in Greenwich Village of Manhattan, uh, which was the official beginning of the gay liberation movement, uh, which it appears we've now come out of that movement. uh, And the official, uh, I don't know what you want to say, the official uh, theme or idea behind that whole movement was, as one writer put it, uh, it was a time to urge homosexuals to engage in radical direct action and counter society's shame with uh, their own gay pride. Uh, And then we now have moved out of the gay liberation movement into uh, the gender revolution. Uh, We could call it that. I haven't read that or seen that. That's something that I kind of just thought of Uh, it's not I'm not talking about the whole gender uh, thing between man and woman, the gender inequality that's part of uh, of our culture today. But what's called gender fluidity. Have you heard that phrase? Uh, The distinctions between male and female. uh, Many want it to become more fluid, less distinct. Uh, There's now an attempt to blur the lines between masculinity and femininity. Uh, That's what gender fluidity is. Uh, Removing those distinctions between male and female, especially the masculine gender, is under attack. Uh, So we see all these things going on. I hope to address some of those things in the future. Uh, But uh, we can't address all of that uh, right now. So we say, well, what's happening in the world today? Uh, What's happening in the world today? It kind of reminds us of and I'm not going to go to every single one of these passages, but I thought you might want to see those. We'll mention those in a moment. Uh, But Romans one tells us what is happening, uh, that when uh, we suppress the truth because we don't like the truth, we then suppress it and we do everything we can Not to accept it, even though God has made his truth about a lot of different things perfectly clear uh, in a lot of different ways. Romans one tells us we choose to reject that uh, because we don't like it. Uh, Then we say, well, why is that happening? Why do we do that? Or why does the unbeliever do that? Well, second Corinthians chapter four, verses three and four, which you do uh, see up there, which I'll turn to and I'll read. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three and four. Why does this happen? Uh, Paul says there, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, uh, those in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So uh, Satan is called the God of this age. He has some control, a lot of influence uh, in people. Uh, are blinded to the truth. Now, it's interesting. Jesus said a couple things in John chapter 17, verse 17. He said, or he was praying, sanctify my followers by the truth. Your word, O Lord, is truth. 
So we know that the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God, it sanctifies us, it purifies us, it causes us to grow spiritually. But it is interesting. There are certain passages and certain things that Jesus said that maybe we like to shy away from because they're not uh, they're either hard to understand or they just make us uncomfortable or they may not be culturally acceptable. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36 uh, remind me of, of some of the words of Jesus that maybe we don't particularly uh, like to hear or we, you know, it doesn't give us that warm fuzzy that we like to have. Uh, you know, this passage you're not going to see on a Christian T-shirt probably uh, when you go to Knott's Mary Farm or something, you know. Uh, nothing against Christian T-shirts. Robert has something on today. It looked really good. It said blood, sweat, and tears. And I asked him if that was from a marriage conference. But uh, it also, he had, then he had some scripture. I couldn't see it until he got closer. I noticed all the men laughed. None of the women did. Okay. Matthew 10:34. Jesus said this, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. We say, what? You're the peacemaker. You're called the prince of peace. But he said, I did not come to bring peace on the earth. What he's saying is uh, when he came into the world to die for our sins, his first visit, he will come again. He said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So. What is he saying there? It seems pretty abrasive, doesn't it? All he is saying there is he's cautioning his disciples that uh, if you're going to choose to follow God, if you're going to choose to believe that the Bible is the word of God, it's going to have a divisive character to it sometimes, right? That people aren't always going to want to hear what the Bible says. I'm a follower of Jesus, and sometimes I find that I myself don't like to hear what the Bible has to say. Right. Right. OK. Yeah. Come on. Folks. It's interesting. You see a hundred heads go. It's tough sometimes. When we speak the truth, because it's what God has told us, we're accused of being narrow or we're accused of being hateful. Uh, we lose friendships. We may even find divisions in our family because we choose to follow the Lord. Uh, but even when we present the truth, as Paul tells us in one of his letters, what we are to speak the truth in love, always loving, always compassionate. But that doesn't mean that we give a green light uh, to ideas and uh, interpretations of life that are not pleasing to God. Uh, some people have reinterpreted the word or the word love and what it means. So we see a, a lot of. What do we want to call it? Um, it's quiet in here. We see just a lot of, uh, I don't like the word revolution because that kind of makes it sound like it's good. But we really see a breakdown, right, in the moral fabric of our country right now. Uh, in the, in specifically in the sexual mores uh, or things that we value in our country. So how do we deal with that? I, I really like Psalm 119. In always the truth and love, always in compassion uh, with people as we share what God has to say. Uh, Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11 uh, are a good reminder. Because we say, how can we live in a world that hates purity and cheapens sex? 
How do we do that? Especially you young people, uh, you millennials, which I forget. You're a millennial. I forget which age group that is, though. Isn't that like 25 and younger, 28 and something like that? I don't know. How do you do it? Uh, because it's interesting for my generation and other generations, we've had a total shift, right, in cultural views of sexuality. Uh, going from things that could never be uttered in public to it just being part of the normal existence for young people today. But Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, I, I like it. Uh, I like these verses a lot. It says, how can a young man or a young person keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word, O Lord? Half heartedly, I have sought you. Is that what it says? What's it say? With my whole heart, there has to be a commitment. There has to be a decision of the will. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Isn't it interesting? He's saying I'm prone to wander. It's like that great hymn, right? Prone to, wa- prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I mean, we're all prone to wander. So he's saying, I want to be in your word. I want to know your commandments because I'm prone to wander away. For your word, read verse 11 with me because we all know it. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So to live in the kind of world that we have today, we really have to know God's word. We have to make that commitment to obey God's word uh, in the face of all the temptation and all the distractions. So in Ruth chapter 3, moving along in our story of a wedding and three scenes, and we're in scene 2, the wedding proposal, we see in Boaz and Ruth a shining example of godliness of purity, of love. We even see good examples of what it means to be masculine, what it means to be feminine. Uh, We're going to concentrate on that today. Those verses up on front uh, are to remind you not to be alarmed by what's going on in the world. We should expect it. Uh, You know, the Apostle Peter says in one of his letters, why are you acting surprised that these fiery trials are coming upon you? Uh, Why are we as Christians caught off guard or even discouraged that the world is in a downward spiral? We shouldn't be, of all people, surprised. Uh, And listen to this. We covered this on our Wednesday night Bible study in the book of Ruth before. But I'll just read this little excerpt that includes these verses. Now, according to the New Testament, you know, if we believe in dispensations, if we believe in God reveals himself during different age periods and in different ways, the New Testament tells us that this present age in which we live has a particular unwholesome designation. Galatians 1.4 calls it an evil age. We just read in Second Corinthians that it's under the dominion of Satan. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us that this age we live in is marked by spiritual darkness. First Corinthians 2 tells us that the darkness of this age in which we live has its own wisdom in which there is no light whatsoever. And as a result, Titus 2.12 tells us that this age is marked by rampant ungodliness and lust. And the believer is commanded to turn away from this ungodliness. And even though we formally walked in conformity to what the world taught us about how to live, we now turn away from it. 
the the brothers there this morning. What's your name? Benji, Benjamin and Timmy. Sorry, I keep saying Benny and Timmy and I'm thinking, should I switch it to Benjamin and Timothy? I don't know. Okay, all right. But in Ephesians, Paul said what regarding believers that there should not be even a hint of sexual immorality among you, not even a hint. So let's look at Boaz and Ruth and see what's happening with this uh, wedding proposal and what they can tell us. On your outlines, we saw last week that Ruth entrusted herself to her kinsman redeemer. Boaz, this man that she has met, turns out to be a close relative. And uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law are in dire straits. They're very poor. They're very vulnerable. They're both widows. Uh, They're alone. Uh, They're at the mercy of the welfare system of Israel. But then they find out, according to the law, that if there's a relative that he is obligated to marry so that he can then protect and provide for the family and carry on the name. And we find out that she meets this Boaz who turns out to be a very close relative. But remember, that's not all there is to the story. Because as we move through the book of Ruth, as with every book of the Bible, we're supposed to see Jesus Christ. And in the book of Ruth, Christ is our redeemer and our brother. Boaz was a close relative and someone that could redeem the family. So we are to see Jesus Christ in Boaz. Jesus is our close relative. The book of Hebrews tells us that, that we can actually call him our brother even though he's our savior. So as we move through this, think of Jesus as well as Boaz. Think of when you see Boaz interacting with Ruth, picture Jesus Christ interacting with you. For as Boaz treats Ruth, so Christ treats us. That's what we want to see as we move through here. So we see in these verses that we're going to look at today that Boaz pledges himself to Ruth. Notice in verse 10, uh, pick up the story in verse 6. Uh, so Ruth went down to the threshing floor like her mother-in-law told her, and she did everything that she had commanded her to do. And after Boaz had eaten, I'm in verse 7 in chapter 3, had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the grain pile. She came secretly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. We saw last week that was a normal custom. That was a way for her To make it known to him uh, that she was available if he was interested. Uh Uh-huh, right? I see some of you ladies smiling uh, and saying, oh, maybe I better do that. Okay. And we've already talked about that sometimes we men, we need something obvious, right, to hit us over the head. uh, Because we don't always get it, right? That's the way. Okay. That's the way we are programmed sometimes. Part of it could be laziness, but I'm not going to. No, I don't think so. All right. Verse eight. So it happened in the middle of the night that Boaz was startled and he twisted himself forward and he saw this woman lying at his feet and he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for your close relative. Uh, That was a common expression of marriage in the Old Testament. And he had already commended her earlier in our story for seeking refuge under the covering or the wings of God. So she was seeking legal protection, 
legal provision. That was according to the law. Verse 10, he pledges to take care of her. And notice that he pledges to take care of her before he even knows if he's legally allowed to. Notice this, guys. There's going to be a lot in this today for us guys uh, on how to treat the woman in our life uh, and how to be a godly man uh, and a man who knows how to treat women. And by the way, this is for the men, uh, the guys and the ladies. Let's not do any uh, of the elbowing today because, well, because a lot of these things we forget. Primarily when the scriptures command a woman to respect uh, and uh, let her husband be the leader, that is really an issue between the wife and the Lord. You know, the husband should never get on his wife's case. Or you're not being submissive or you're not doing what the Lord told you to do. Guys, that's between her and the Lord. And vice versa, ladies, you let the Lord work with your husbands as far as uh, his leading and the way that he takes charge and the things that he's responsible for uh, and his spiritual growth. We, you want to encourage him toward that. But here's the thing. Be content with the man that God has given you and the way that he is. Because sometimes, uh, ladies, uh, I don't want to step out of bounds. So if I'm wrong, I want to see some fingers going, oh, okay. As I perceive it uh, in my own life and from the scriptures, uh, I think sometimes wives have a hard time being content because they're always wanting their husbands to be more, to be more, to be more. Uh, And it's easy to get discouraged by focusing on everything that he's not and everything that he isn't doing rather than being thankful for who he is and what he's done. Uh, But anyway, the point is there's the mutual surrendering of the spouse to the Lord. Don't try to be your wife's Holy Spirit. Don't try to be your husband's Holy Spirit. You know, let God work on the growth. Okay, does that make sense? Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. My husband is just the most amazing, perfect man without any flaws at all. That's what Lisa would say if she was here today. I know it's too bad she's sick or she could testify. Hmm. Okay. All right. We've been married 28 years. I can put words in her mouth. I think she's okay. But notice in verse 10, Boaz says, and I love this, love this, love this. Guys, sit up straight, get your pen or your pencil, circle that verse 10 and listen closely. He said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. The very first Thing he does when the problem comes or the crisis comes or the situation comes. The very first thing he does is bring the Lord God into the picture. Mm, I love that. That's one of my favorite spiritual phrases. Mm, mm, mm. Doesn't that just don't you just go? Wow. As a man of God, as a man of action, As a leader, as a man with noble character, the first thing he does is bring the Lord into the picture. Do we do that? Is that my first response when there's a problem or a situation or a question or a struggle or maybe even a joy or a good thing? The first thing I do is I turn to 
the Lord. What does that mean? That's kind of a Christian expression, right? We throw things around. Turn to the Lord. What does that mean? Where's he at? I don't see it. It means talk to him. It means to pray. It means to ask for wisdom. It means to pray for guidance. It means to open our scriptures uh, and find some word from the Lord in the Bible that pertains to the situation. It means going to talk to other brothers or sisters in Christ to see what their understanding, according to the scriptures, would be. He turns to the Lord the very first thing. Then he says in verse 10 to her, you have shown your last kindness, being what you've done right now, to be better than your first kindness, meaning when she decided to come to Israel with her mother-in-law to take care of her, by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, what he's saying there is not the obvious. He's not saying, oh, she's going after, I'm glad she didn't go after someone younger because I'm old. Uh, you know, it's not saying every lady likes a younger God, maybe that's true. I don't know. But, no, I won't say it. Okay. But notice that he praises her. That's your blank number one there. Uh, that Boaz gave Ruth a promise. Here's your several blanks up there to give you time to write those down. What he's saying is Ruth could have married a richer, younger Guy, but she chose not to. What does that tell us about her? It tells us that she didn't live by her natural desires. Here we go, ladies. Are you ready? I'm not looking at anyone in particular. I'll look at you. How's that, Irene? Okay. Are you ready? When you're looking for a man, Irene. Oh, no, I'm just... You don't want to live by your natural desires, but you want to live with a supernatural ambition. Ruth didn't go after some younger guy, some richer guy, some better situation, which is what the world would tell us to do, right? She was looking for someone who qualified according to God's standards. She was a godly woman, so she was looking for a godly man. And this is what I always cautioned my own children, two of whom are married now, is that you will attract the type of person of whom you are. In other words, if you're not walking with the Lord, then you're going to attract people and become emotionally attached and involved with people who aren't walking with the Lord. But if you are a godly young man or a godly young woman, then that's what you will be looking for. And that's whose eye you will catch. If you're living as a godly young person, you'll catch the eye of a godly young person. I mean, it's just math, right? It's simple math. Okay. One plus one plus one equals two. The man, the woman, and the Lord equals one marriage. She made choices based on what was right rather than based on emotion or some personal whim. She could have married someone else. But then Naomi, her mother-in-law, would have been left homeless and her family name would have died. She was thinking still about other people in her life, not just about herself. Because she had made a pledge to take care of her mother-in-law, who was also widowed. And only the kinsman redeemer, only the close relative, would be responsible by law to take care of both of these ladies. 
So he tells her in verse 11 is where he specifically gives her a promise. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. You are a woman of excellence. Boaz gives Ruth a promise. And he is a promise keeper. He is a promise keeper. Men, it is so important that when we make a promise that we keep our word. No matter how small, no matter how big. It's important as the leader in the home, as the husband, as the father, uh, however we want to put it, to be a man of our word. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says that it is impossible for God to lie. God always keeps his word. Jesus has kept his word to us. Isn't he the great promise keeper in our lives? He has never let us down, not one. A couple occasions, remember Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Because remember, his disciples were so discouraged that he said that he was going to be dying and leaving. And he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you because in my father's house are many mansions. If you translate that, it's actually the word room. There are many rooms in my father's house. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is a promise keeper. Then notice the second half of verse 11, which we already read. He gives her a compliment. He gives her a compliment. He talks about her moral worth and her reputation. And it's noted, it's worth noting that the same word for excellence in chapter 2, verse 1 is used to describe Boaz as well. So he gives her a compliment. And you know what I'm going to say next, right, guys? It's important that we compliment the ladies in our lives, right? How often we forget just to say thank you. It's so much more natural, especially the longer you've been. You know, when you're first together, like when you're dating, you're engaged, you know, you're, you're opening doors, you're saying thank you, you're... Doing nice things, you know, and then as time goes on, uh, I know it doesn't happen if any marriages in here, you know, but some marriages, some of the guys get a little lazy, uh, get a little, uh, I would say forgetful. I don't think it's forgetful, uh, but it's so important, right, to just give verbal compliments to the women in our lives. Let them know that they're appreciated. Let them know that they're loved. Let them know how much they mean to you, whether it's a big thing or a little. Let's see a show of hands. How many ladies in here hate receiving compliments? Let's count the hands. Raise your hand if you hate receiving compliments. Hmm, that's odd. Hmm. So every single lady in here enjoys receiving a compliment? Let's see a show of hands if you do enjoy receiving a compliment. Ladies only. Okay. All right. I'm assuming that your hand is up in your heart. Okay. All right. Some of you are just staring at me. Uh, I'm trying to get you engaged. Not literally, but well, maybe. Uh, I'm trying to get you engaged in a conversation. It's important, ladies, right? 
any ladies here that are currently dating or have been married or are married, is it important to be complimented by the man in your life? And I'll say this, get in trouble in this age of gender fluidity, but I believe that that's the way that God created us. Ladies like to feel secure. They like to feel safe. They like to feel loved and appreciated. I've counseled many married couples uh, where the wife no longer feels as worthy because her husband is not making her feel loved. It's important, guys. Okay. Beating a dead horse. Okay. Hope, hope, hope you don't mind me saying that. that didn't... Okay. Never mind. All right. In verse 12, verse 12, notice that he gives her a shock. Everything's rolling along great. God sends Boaz. Uh, Naomi gives her a plan. Make yourself available. Maybe he's the answer to all of our struggles. Maybe the Lord will use him. So we're rolling along. And then verse 12, he says, now it is true. I am a close relative. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. And then we see a real downer. What's the next word? Yet, Yet or however. Wah, wah, wah. However, there is a relative closer than I. Wow. Well, that's a kick to the head right there. Right? They're all excited. They obviously have feelings for each other. This could be the Lord's will. And then the breaks go on. What I thought was the Lord's will it was so clearly laid out in front of me and I'm rejoicing. And now it's like sometimes my brothers were mean when we were little. They're not mean now. You'd be riding your bike and they'd like to stick a stick right in, you know, because they thought that was funny. That's what. Yeah. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That's what. Appears to be happening here. This is a real test for Ruth and Naomi, isn't it? It all looked so good. It all looked so obviously God's will. But now there might be someone else. There might be someone else. Look at verse 13. He gives her, though, assurance. Stay here tonight. And when morning comes, if this other relative will redeem you, then that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not want to redeem you, meaning rescue your family name by marrying you, then I will do it as the Lord lives. See, he puts the Lord right in the center of the problem. Lie down until morning. Nothing impure going on here. He's just caring for her. Did you catch that? Even if Boaz doesn't have the privilege of marrying Ruth, he's still going to take the steps to make sure that she is cared for by someone. Now, that is real love. That's real love. It may not be him, but he's going to make sure that she's cared for. Then verse 14 we see that Boaz gives her a reminder of the importance of purity, as we read about in Ephesians 5. So she stayed there and laid at his feet until morning. 
And she rose before anyone could recognize anyone else. And he said, do not let it be known to the woman or let it don't let it be known that the woman Ruth came to the threshing floor. So there's nothing shady going on here. He's trying to protect her reputation. Number one, she couldn't walk home at night in the dark by herself. That would have been extremely dangerous. But then he didn't want anyone impugning her character by accusing her of something shady or sexual going on when it wasn't. The text makes it clear that they were both very godly, pure, moral people. So once again, he's looking out for her needs. If that information got out into the public, it could really ruin her reputation. Guys. So important to protect your lady's reputation. And I don't mean getting in a fist fight if somebody insults her when you're at the Hollywood Bowl at a concert or something. I mean, uh, if you have to defend her physically, then yes. But I think what we're talking about and seeing more here is protecting her reputation by the way that you treat her. By the way that you treat her, you send a message to the world of her worth to you. You're not going to say anything to her or do anything to her or use her in selfish ways to gratify your own desires. You're not going to do anything that is not in her best interest, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Then after marriage, that's why the scriptures say in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The command is to nurture our wives. Do you know what it means to nurture something? To care for it. We are to provide the environment in which our wives and our children can flourish in the home. It doesn't mean that they will, because sometimes our kids and our spouses make choices that are wrong. But we make sure that we do everything we can to create the environment in the home to make it possible for them to flourish. One author says, how refreshing to see a man, woman committed to purity. Allow me to speak candidly, he says. Sex is good. A gift from our creator to mankind. Sex is enjoyable by God's design. A good gift to be enjoyed within the marriage relationship. It's like fire. Fire is good when it stays in the fireplace, but it becomes destructive when a burning log rolls out of the fireplace onto the family room carpet. Our society mocks purity, but in so doing, it cheapens sex. Sex becomes hollow when experienced before or outside of marriage. That's why true love waits until marriage. And once married, true love flees from every form of sexual immorality and chooses to use this gift as a way to serve one's spouse. Marriage is a place to learn how to serve another person. It's all about giving. It's not about receiving. It's not about taking. It's about giving. Why? It's an example of Christ's love for us as the church. So we see Boaz protecting Ruth's purity and her reputation. Lastly, 
Notice in verse 15 that he gives her a generous surprise gift. Now the ladies are really getting into this now, right? A generous surprise gift in verse 15. Again, he said, give me the shawl that you're carrying on your shoulder and hold on to it. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and laid it on her. It was probably like around 60 pounds, probably. Um, it, It would have been a lot, I think, for her to carry, but enough that she could. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter-in-law? And she told her all that the man had done for her. So he surprises her with a gift. He doesn't know if he's going to be her husband. He's genuinely concerned about her and he wants to protect her and take care of her because he loves her. He's treating her in a respectful way, in a pure way, and he doesn't send her off empty handed. But he surprises her. And if you compare this amount of grain to the amount that he had given her previously, this was a lot more. Guys, see, the women are all smiling because they know what's coming. Guys, it's good to give the lady in your life sometimes a surprise, generous gift. Do I get an amen from the ladies? Yeah, well, that was pretty muted. And uh, maybe some of you haven't been surprised recently. I don't know. Maybe it's good to do that, to show care, to show appreciation, to show love, to show respect. Just because I got you this, I knew you really wanted it. And guys, by the way, the Apostle Peter says in one of his letters Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Do you know what that means? Literally translated, husbands, study your wives. Husbands, study your wives. You should know what makes her happy, what doesn't make her happy, what gets her excited, what doesn't. You should learn what ticks her off. You should learn what makes her heart sing. We should spend time studying the wife or the woman that God has given us because everybody's different. You say, oh, she loves flowers. Well, what kind of flowers are her favorite? Um, Dandelions? I don't know. Oh, she loves to eat out. Oh, really? What's her favorite restaurant? Um, in and out You know, I bought her this, oh, I was going to say scarf and gloves, so you don't need those around here. <laughs> That's Indiana coming out. Uh, really? Oh, what's her favorite color? Mm, black? I don't know. We have to study our wives. We have to study our wives. I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you what I do. And it's fun. It's been 28 Christmases together. I already told you I ruined our first Christmas because when she left, I opened up all the presents she bought me. Then I figured out I didn't know how to rewrap them. So when she came home, it was all taped and oh, it was, it was just it was bad. I was bad. I was so bad, really bad. But for 28 years now, see, when each of my brothers and sisters and I, there's nine of us, when each of us was born, My mom's sister, my Aunt Janice, made us each our own homemade Christmas stocking. I still have mine. 
It's 49 years old. It looks brand new. She made them really sturdy and cool. Mine has Rudolph with a little bell on the nose. Anyway. And so the first year we were married, I had my Aunt Janice make Lisa a stocking. And now every Christmas, I go out by myself and I fill that stocking with things. Not like expensive things. Not like diamond rings and cruise, carnival cruise. You know, so. But just stuff that I know that she would like. And she always appreciates that. And let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm not taking credit for myself, but she really, she just loves that Christmas morning going through that stocking to see what she got. Because I try to make sure each thing has a little bit of thought to it. Does it take time? Yes. Does it work? Hmm. Not if you go to Seal Beach, you can have lunch and hang out and stuff too, so... But after 28 years, it's easier. But I know it's something that she appreciates. It's a surprise for her. It's very important for us to do that. Closing. Scene three of our wedding. A wedding in three scenes. Waiting for the wedding day. Look in verse 18. Pick it up in 17. I want to point something out real quick. We're going to wrap this up. Ruth said, these six measures of barley he gave to me because he said, do not go to your mother-in-law. How? Empty handed. Ladies and gentlemen, does that word empty ring a bell from earlier in our story? This, this is so cool. If we could, we would draw an arrow from there all the way back to chapter one, because Naomi said, the Lord sent me out from my home full and now he's brought me back empty. But now Boaz sent back all this food because he didn't want me to return to you empty handed. Wow. It's a 180 from the Lord in her life. She came to this point of trust and glorifying God. I'm talking about Naomi through a lot of hardship, a lot of trials, a lot of suffering. But she has come through it. If you're going through a hard time, especially in a relationship, just be patient. It's, it, it may be hard. It may be difficult. It may even be dark. But know that if you trust the Lord and obey him, you will come out on the other side full. Full. You may feel like you're running on empty, but that's not going to last forever. Verse 18, Naomi said to Ruth, wait, my daughter, then until you know how the matter turns out. For the man Boaz will not rest until he has settled the matter. Guys, be a man of action. Be a leader by initiating, by taking control, by taking charge. That's what leadership is. And ladies, let your guys do that. And guys, when you're taking charge and showing initiative, go to the woman in your life and get her input. Get her wisdom. Get her thoughts. And then, ladies, sometimes we guys, we gather your thoughts, your feelings on a certain issue, and maybe we decide we're going to go a different route. Don't beat us up about that. Don't beat us down about that. We cherish your input. We value your wisdom. And then sometimes we have to make some tough choices. Here's what we learn. 
Last slide. Jot down those verses. We won't go there because we're out of time. Isaiah talks a lot about waiting on the Lord. Waiting is not easy, but waiting is not passive. Waiting on the Lord is not a passive activity. Because we see Ruth and Boaz, don't we? What are they doing? They are doing right while they are waiting. I'm in a hard time. I'm in a vulnerable position. I don't know how things are going to work out. But I'm not going to just lay down and wallow in my misery and my fear and my anxiety, which it's tempting to do. But I'm going to continue to obey the Lord. Obey the commands of his word. Because oftentimes when part of my world falls apart, it's tempting to say, what's the use? What does it matter anyway? It always matters. Follow their example. Do right while you're waiting. Number two. See God accomplishing his will in your life through other people. They are God's tool, not obstacles. And no, ladies, I'm not saying your husband is a tool. Uh, God uses other people to accomplish his will in our life. The good, the bad, the ugly. God was using Boaz to accomplish his will in Ruth and Naomi's life. They didn't know at this point if he was going to marry Ruth or not. So they were going to wait and let the Lord work through Boaz to decide whatever the outcome would be. But one thing we can be sure, those ladies were going to continue to praise the Lord. They were going to continue to worship the Lord. They were going to continue to bless the Lord and thank the Lord for everything that he had done and the ways that he had provided. And if he's going to change the plan, if it's not going to be Boaz, I firmly believe that whatever happens, however it turns out, come back next week to see how it turns out, that they're going to continue to follow the Lord. And then we already talked about the last thing. Stand together with me. What's that last sentence say there? See yourself as full, not empty. Ladies and gentlemen, don't let your mind lie to you. Even in our darkest hours, we are not empty. We are full because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. We may be in a hard time, a lonely time, a discouraging time, an uncertain time. But we're not empty. And it's human nature to feel like I'm empty even when I'm full. Right? We can't trust our feelings. We have to trust God's word, which says I'm full because he is with me. Jesus said what? It's in the scriptures. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. You're full. You're full. And by the way, thank God for what he's doing in your life during your empty times. Because your empty times are not coincident. They're not accident. They're probably not even punishment or discipline. They are God's tools to do something in your life. As we read this morning in our discussion on depression, it means that God is on the move in your life. He's trying to do something. He's trying to mold you into the image of Christ. He's going to use that empty time to make you feel full.
again. Let's pray. Bow your heads. If some of you today feel like you're running on empty and you needed to be reminded that you're full and you would just like to encourage us by just being honest about that, just raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come up. You feel like you're running on empty and you just wish you were more full. Okay, thanks. There's a lot, a lot of you. Yeah. I, I too feel like I run on empty sometimes. And you know what I do? I just go before the Lord. I bow my head. I start praying. Or I turn on worship music and I just start singing. And I just pour out my heart before the Lord. And I tell him, this is what's bothering me. This is what's burdening me. This is what's hurting me. This is what's scaring me. This is what's making me anxious. And I pray, dear Lord, I would pray that you take these things off my plate. But more than that, I pray that if you choose to leave these things on my plate, you would, number one, help me to be able to bear up under it. And number two, help me to come out shining through it so that you would receive glory and honor. As the Lord told Paul about his suffering, Paul, in your weakness, my strength is perfected. So, Father, this morning we do confess openly to you that sometimes we find ourselves feeling empty. Sometimes it's our own fault because of incorrect thinking and incorrect choices. Sometimes it's because of what others have done to us. We've been victimized. Sometimes it's a combination of things. But, Father, help us to believe the truth. Paul told the Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is right, think about those things. Philippians chapter 4. Father, guard our minds. Help us to think true thoughts. Help us to remind ourselves that we are full because we are the object of your love. That you are always at work in us and around us. Father, thank you for every single person you brought into our life. The easy people, the difficult people. The loving people, the hurtful people. It's all by your design because you're at work in our lives. So, Father, whether we're feeling empty or whether we're full, teach us to praise you, to honor you, to glorify you, to thank you. Because you are a good God. You're a great God. You're a loving God. You're merciful and patient. And we just love you so much. We thank you for redeeming us as Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi. So we leave here today rejoicing. We leave here encouraged. We leave here hopeful. We leave here content. We leave here in peace. Because our Savior sits on the throne of our hearts. So we just want to give him all the glory and the praise that he deserves. And it's in his matchless name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today, folks. We'll see you next Sunday for Mother's Day. Don't forget, I think there's a special something going. Don't forget to sign your name up if you want to attend the breakfast. It's out in the foyer.